Hello, welcome to Screw It. We're just going to talk about comics, and that's comic books, fools. Uh, this is a podcast where two brothers uh, who love comic books uh, talk about them. The first time that two male uh, members of society have gotten together to talk about comic books. We're really excited uh, to do it. Um, I am one of the two brothers. My name is Will Hines. And if you just cast your ears over here, I'm the other brother. My name is Kevin Hines. We sound similar. Don't let that confuse you. Or maybe maybe we want it to confuse you. Yeah, let's keep you on your toes. Keep you guessing. Uh, I want to get credit for some of the smart things Will says and let him get the criticism for some of the dumb things I'm going to say. I want Kevin's dumb things attributed to me. I'm tired of being right all the time. It must be rough. It's a burden. Uh, this season of our podcast, we are discussing the Fantastic Four. We're going over all 102 issues plus six annuals of the original run done by Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. Uh, it's a sprawling, epic, densely populated snatch of stories that's a snatch that's uh driving me um kevin you shouldn't have said that uh oh. that, that's driving me nuts and um and i love it so um and we're in the middle of it and today we're taking a break from going over issues to sort of catch up on some things we haven't been able to get to yeah last episode we covered uh issues i think 54 to 67 is that what i just said i think that's um, ish, that's right ish plus a couple annuals and it was too many issues too many. Uh, i was exhausted we went- for days after that episode we went long, uh, we, we ran out of steam at the end, and we had time to do nothing else. So we're catching um, up on emails and some discussion topics that we wanted to get to. And then next, right. next uh, when we get back to the issues, we're going to go in smaller chunks, small, w- w- smaller human-sized chunk. Yeah, something uh, achievable, Yeah, I think is our goal. We're not John Henry. We're not a steam engine. We can only go through this mountain as far as we can go each time. Check. Jack Kirby could write these uh, comics faster than we could cover them. That's probably true. Yeah. So today we're doing a we're doing a, we're going to do a deep dive on the Human Torch Johnny Storm because we like to do deep dives in each of the characters and we haven't gotten to him yet and we're going to do some email and then we'll do some brief discussion topics with each other and that's what we're doing this episode, Kevin. Uh, yeah, yeah, this is going to be fun. It'll be hopefully a little shorter um, with with just as much punch. All the punch, not as much time. You guys are going to be able to get on with your lives so much sooner. A lot of people, when they listen to our podcasts, they stop everything they're doing. Mm-hmm. They like sit in a dark room <laughs> with yeah. perfect, you know, like they got to have great sound system. The ideal way is uh, to get into a sensory deprivation tank with just your Bluetooth earbuds. Yeah. If you're not listening to us that way, you're missing out on some aspect. You're being distracted by the outside world too much. And I don't think you're getting the full impact of what we have to say about these comic books we read as a children. Go back to episode one. Get into a sensory deprivation tank. And I'm thinking of those stand-up coffin things like with water, like in the movie Altered States, which I'm yeah, sure yeah. is a movie that everybody out there has seen. Yeah, or like in the television program The Fringe, uh, or Fringe, uh, it was on Fox for a few seasons, starred Pacey yeah. from Dawson's Creek. Uh, they also did a lot of stuff with a sensory deprivation tank. So if you are if you don't know what a sensory deprivation tank is, first, go watch Altered States and Fringe. All of Fringe, all of the then movie Altered one. States. Then, then get a tank. Then get a tank. Go back to then, episode one. Yeah. And listen to our podcast properly. Thank you. Okay. Uh, what do you say we uh, get into this deep dive on uh, Johnny Storm, the Human Torch? Yeah. So we put him off for a little bit because I kind of wanted to wait until after we got in at least into his relationship with Crystal. Because I think while he was the first, he was the most well-developed initially. Yeah. He then sort of plateaus for a long time up until this sort of run. 
How would you characterize his personality pre-Crystal? Hothead teen. Yep. Popular, I don't, I don't like a, your typical teen uh, that you would expect from watching Dobie Gillis. Yes. He's into girls and pre, cars. Pre, yeah, pre-neurotic teen, sort of like the confident, confident popular guy who's very comfortable being a superhero. Yeah, he was immediately the most comfortable in the superhero side of things where the thing was tortured and Reed was sort of all business. Johnny was having a blast and he could fly i guess i get it yeah i guess i get it too and then once and once crystal came in the picture how did that sort of help his story i mean his personality doesn't change so much as it gives him something other than just being the human torch to to focus on he now can focus on getting reconnected with the woman he loves who is in another race that's trapped behind a barrier she's involved in like giant inhuman type business and you know doesn't just have time for him. And I think that's healthy for him. And it yes. creates some fun soap opera stuff. As I've said, I think in the past to you, at least, Will, the, they fall in love maybe too fast. They see each other and then immediately <laughs> yeah. are tortured it's because insane. they've been separated. Yeah, they become like a tortured emo couple and panel two. Yeah. And if you ignore that and you just accept that they are in love, I think their storyline is really fun. As bad as Stan Lee is at writing female characters, and I guess Jack too, um, they did do tons of romance books in the 50s. Like that was as part of their their work in the 50s was doing lots of genre books which included romance books so even though it was sort of i don't know like an antiquated view of love you know girls whose only goal is to get married trying to connive their way into boys hearts it still meant that they had some practice at that sort of soap opera drama you know the thing you know like the roy lichtenstein yeah. art, where it's just like a panel and it's like brad has to need me he has to like stan and jack did those comics like everybody did in the 50s i think I think they're weirdly better at melodramatic soap opera love than they are at just a female character on her own. It, it doesn't solve the problem of how badly female characters are treated in the 60s, but in terms as a reader, when somebody falls in love with somebody, it gets better. Yeah. I mean, I didn't read those romance. I've never read, I don't think, any of those romance comics. I've only so read a hundred or so. Okay, great. So I don't necessarily have a feel for what those are like. I mean, I, I know they're very melodramatic and over the top. I don't know how awful they are for women's uh, characteristics. Yeah. That definitely the thing they like to do with women is relationship. Relative to the low bar uh, of female characters in 1960s Marvel comics, it... It makes it better when there's people in love. And and Johnny uh, becomes a lot more interesting when he's pining away for Crystal and he's heartbroken. And Crystal is handled decently at first. Uh, decently on the scale of... 60s Marvel um, Comics. Yeah, Sue Storm, The Wasp, and Jean Grey, I guess, are his main competitions. Yeah. She has really formidable power. She can control the weather. She's loyal to her persecuted people and has a lot of integrity and fights for them. Honestly, Aunt May is probably the best written female in comics at this time. <laughs> that's, that's interesting. Or maybe Betty Brant. Uh, yeah, Betty Brant's pretty cool. At least at times, at times. I, you know, Liz Allen gets kind of good by the end of... We always get back to Spider-Man. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well. Liz Allen, uh, Spidey's other romantic interest before Gwen Stacy. Not really romantic. You know, high school popular girl that starts off being kind of a bully, but then softens. Yeah, and sort of falls for Peter she, quietly. She and Betty sort of... They're not bad for this They era. have moments, at least. Uh, yeah. Some of these characters don't. Uh, so Crystal's handled pretty well, and she definitely brings out a great side to Johnny. I think the thing for me, at least, is that Johnny feels like a character that has gotten the least attention yeah. of the Fantastic Four. Four, um, I think Thing has gotten probably the most. Right. Easily. Followed closely by Reed. Yes. Um, and then Sue, like in the more modern times, has gotten some attention, sort of to try to retroactively 
make up for how poorly she was treated for so long, yeah. at least in the burn era and on. Yes. And then I think Johnny has had a couple moments here and there. I, I mentioned to you earlier, the Jonathan Hickman did sort of a storyline focused on Johnny where he kind of gets trapped in the negative zone. But there's not a ton of stories that I really feel like, ooh, that's a great human torch story. Uh, I've said this to you before. Jack Kirby is... The, the Jack Kirby, the artist and the main writer of the of the Fantastic Four in the era that we're doing. Um, the king of comics, Jack Kirby, the guy who is responsible for so much real estate of Marvel comics that it's yeah. insane. Not familiar with him, but go yes, on. Yes, you've heard of him. Uh, you should, If you haven't, you should really look into him. Oh, if I have time. Kirby, uh, he's not good at internal life. He makes characters who are built to go out and have adventures. They are very active protagonists. They go and they explore civilizations. They face up to obstacles and overcome them. But he doesn't, you know, Ditko is all about that internal life. Kirby is the external life. What civilization can we discover? And in that way, Johnny Storm is a pretty quintessential old school Kirby character in my mind. Like built to have adventures. He's fearless. He's brave, capable and powerful. He's bound by duty and honor. You know, he's like a 1950s stand-up, tall, uh, you know, Captain America type. He is the first into battle. He and the Thing are always the first into any fight the Fantastic Four get involved. He's the hardest one to pull away from a fight. He never wants to give up. Goes into the Hulk fight despite having, like, an arm and a cast. Chases after Doom on his uh, Silver Surfer surfboard. He doesn't want to give up. Goes right after Galactus. Yeah. Blast him immediately. I dressed up as the Human Torch in third grade. He was my favorite superhero when I was a kid, even more than Spider-Man. And he was uh, recognized by everyone far and wide in 1978. Everyone's like, oh, Will's the Human Torch. Good choice. And no one knew who this guy was. Like, they would they would try to guess that I was the devil. Uh, they just had no idea. My mother made a homemade costume of, like, red fabric with, like, little flames glued all over it. And uh, I loved it. I, I loved being this person. But... I did get weary of, of people not knowing who I was. I think I tried to explain it to a couple of people, and then I just gave up. And I would just say that I was the Human Torch, and they would just kind of nod blankly, and I would move on. Yeah, I, th- I mean, kids want to be recognized. When I, when I give out candy at Halloween, I, if I recognize sort of an obscure character, I try to name that person so yeah. they know that somebody got it. I picture you getting too detailed. I actually, one time, one time, I forget what it was, I named what somebody was. They were sort of like an evil version. I could tell they were dressing up as like, I don't know, like evil Snow White or something. It wasn't, Yeah. they weren't being like the witch. They were sort of just doing their own spin on something. Yeah. And when I said it, they looked almost disappointed that it was so easily figured out. Oh, they wanted to, they wanted to fool you. Yeah, so it doesn't always work. I should just keep my mouth shut and give them candy. You would have been my dream person to trick or cheat to. You would have answered been like, ah, the Silver Age Human Torch, a creation of Jack Kirby. I'd have been like, Johnny Storm or Jim Hammond? (laughs) (laughs) I I adored the Human Torch, I think just because I liked the powers. I liked the idea of being able to burst into flame and fly everywhere. Like, that just seemed intoxicating for me to think about like that i just you know i wanted to be that super being the power. one member of the team that can fly certainly ties into that personality type it's funny, when you're a kid like you know the good comic books have great stories and great characters that hook you and you know comics today are written to have a lot of depth but when you're like a kid you just want cool powers like you are i mean i was almost wholly focused on what are the powers what are the rules i want to imagine having those powers you know, like I'd read those 70s Superman comics when they would get really detailed about the rules and what, how the different types of kryptonite limited which things. I was all about that stuff when I was a kid. I think I was paying zero attention to the soap opera aspect of the stories. 
And I wanted to be the Human Torch. Yeah. And, and he was a popular character even in the 60s, right? Like he spins out into his own book. Yeah, right away he is the star of Strange Tales, but spins out of the and, – and I've read a lot of those. Maybe he gets a lot more depth in there, though I sort of doubt it. Yeah. It seems like it was uh, – Kirby was not super involved over there, and Stan probably was scripting that. Uh, I think actually Larry Lieber scripted a lot of it. Stan's brother. Yeah, um, so. I think uh, I think just the torch is built for Jack Kirby to. He's a guy that Kirby can just send into all kinds of weird situations, and he also pairs off with our, our boy Spider Man a lot. He's great foil for Spider Man. He just like Crystal brings out a good side of Johnny when Johnny's in love with Crystal. Spidey brings out a great side of Johnny. Out of both of them. Out of both of them, Spidey is you know Peter Parker is the nervous, self doubting nerd that is not popular and is poor and is fretting about his life. And then in comes Johnny, a wealthy, famous, completely confident and comfortable other teenager with powers. There's also the aspect that like Spidey's a solo character and Torch is part of a team. And that, I'm reading into it a little bit, but there could be something that's fun that like Spidey's alone and he wishes he had people to work with. But then Johnny's probably also jealous that doesn't do it alone. Like he can't, he isn't just like his own guy. Like he's like, oh, you know, I don't know. As a teen, you'd probably look at Spider-Man and be like, this guy's living the life. Yeah. He sets his own rules. He decides what they're, he's going to do. Kevin and I have talked about we like Torch and Spidey as sort of friends. We like when they, that are, they're loyal to each other. They sort of feel a kinship because they're the two teenagers, especially in the 60s in the Marvel Comics universe. Yeah, they were both teens when the Marvel Universe started. And even now when they're in their late 20-somethings or mid-20-somethings, who knows with Marvel time what their age is, they've been doing it the longest together. Um, you know, Spidey and Reed can be colleagues and... Captain America is, you know, understanding of everybody. But these two guys were the kids who kind of grew up together. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're the closest the Marvel Universe has to, like, Nightwing and Wally West, uh, you know, sort of former sidekicks that are now full-on superheroes. They're the David Byrne and Joey Ramone of New York City uh, superhero stuff. It's the the Joey Ramone. Oh, and Debbie Harry. Torch is Debbie Harry. Just like popular and beloved and confident. Spidey is uh, Joey Ramone, like an OCD nervous wreck. You're, you're with me on this, right? Could Debbie Harry ignite on in fire? I, it wouldn't surprise me, but she never did it. Do you want to talk a little bit about the John Byrne issue? Yeah, so... Uh, I, you know, like a lot of things in the Fantastic Four, when John Byrne takes over writing and drawing the FF in the 1980s, he fleshes out a lot of things that had not been fleshed out consistently. And he does a great Human Torch story. It's the second ever John Byrne issue, issue 233. Kevin looked this up before. Mission for a Dead Man. I love this story. And it's Johnny who gets a letter from somebody he went to high school with that he barely knows who asks the torch to clear his name. And Johnny does some investigating and finds out this dude has been executed for murder. But he's intrigued. He doesn't, he, he doesn't have any friendship with this guy, but he's sort of moved by the letter. I remember it's a handwritten letter that you can see in the comic and you have to read in script. And he goes and investigates and finds out that while this dude was a criminal who had done lots of bad stuff, he never committed murder and he was wrongly convicted of a murder and this guy wanted his name cleared not for the not for his criminal record's sake but just so that his mother knows he wasn't a killer and so johnny does this investigation he finds evidence and he goes to the mom and says your son wasn't a killer and it was it's a sweet story and it's lovely and johnny 
barely has to use his flame. I think he does in a, in a little investigation, like with, you know, illuminating a room and stuff like that. But it's like just Johnny being smart, solving a mystery, being human. And it's just sweet and great. And it's the second John Byrne story he ever did for FF. Uh, I wonder if John Byrne kind of noticed that, like, uh, Johnny doesn't get a chance to do this sort of stuff. Let's let's showcase him right away. Like as the, as the guy sort of taking over this book and also trying to prove himself as a good writer. Right. He had not been a writer. Yeah. He's coming in as a hit penciler, but not any. They're giving him the chance to write and draw the Fantastic Four. To do a kind of a solo torch with your second story feels so deliberate. It's definitely announcing your presence with authority type of move. Like, I'm going to go for the character that no one goes and I'm going to make a good story out of it. And he does. Yeah, that John Byrne run is incredible. It's so that, that was what introduced Kevin and I to the Fantastic Four. When we were kids in the 80s, it was John Byrne's stories that we read. Yeah, and I probably didn't read this issue until much later because I feel like I started reading a little bit into the run. We started, well, we the very first Fantastic Four issues we bought were right before the Secret Wars happened. So it was right before She-Hulk joined the Fantastic Four. That's yes. when we started. And then we... We loved them so much we started buying the back issues, which at that time were very recent back issues and inexpensive to acquire. I think I didn't even really read it when they joined the Secret Wars. I think I probably was a little bit later, not much later, but I probably came in just a little bit later and then sort of was like, oh, yeah, this is good. Yeah. As I was like my voracious appetite for more comics sort of expanded. Anyway, uh, Torch. uh, Yeah, so he, he he gets his time later. He's great with Crystal. He doesn't end up with Crystal, though, right? No, he doesn't end up with anybody. He's He dates around. Uh, Crystal marries Quicksilver for a while, though I believe they are divorced now. So that's a whole thing. He dates Medusa recently, which is weird to date Crystal's sister. Um, but I guess if Crystal's married, Johnny's got to move on. Yeah, sure, I guess. He likes those Inhumans with long red slash orange hair. It, uh, just don't date someone's sister of someone you dated. His girlfriend under John Byrne was Frankie Ray, right? Who becomes a herald of Galactus. Yes. That was, uh, was an extremely was, was he, cool story. I loved it. Was he dating her already when the story started? Yes. So that's a character he took over. Yeah. Yeah, and then he ends up dating Alicia for a little while, which is also not cool. Not cool at all. That's... That's Ben Grimm's love. Those handled well in the comic itself. Yeah, no, it, it was it made for a good story. I'm I'm speaking just as a fan of Ben Grimm, not as a auditor of quality of story. I mean, if you went to outer space and were living on another planet, I doubt I would date your longtime significant other. Thank you. I doubt it. <laughs> yeah, don't don't totally rule it out. If she was a blind sculptress. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I just don't know, you know. <laughs> okay, maybe, I think, have we done the Johnny Storm deep dive? I think let's take a quick break and we'll come back and do some emails. All right, we'll take it, we'll be right back. Oh. Uh, this is Will and Kevin from Screw It. We're just going to talk about comics. And hey, if you're enjoying this podcast, maybe try listening to our first season. Yeah, maybe. We started this podcast by doing a whole season, 50 episodes, all about Spider-Man comics. We even did it under a different name. Screw it. We're just going to talk about Spider-Man. Uh, and we did one episode for each issue of the original comic book run. That was done by Spidey's creators, Steve Ditko and Stan Lee. Plus, we spent time talking about the Spider-Man movies, the recent video game, one on Steve Ditko, one on Stan Lee, and lots of other fun stuff. And all those episodes are still up. They should be part of the same feed you use to get this podcast. So, if you're a fan of Spider-Man, uh, check those out. Screw it. We're just going to talk about comics. But in this case, we're just talking about the first season where we talk about Spider-Man. All from Campfire Media. <laughs> We are back. Kevin, let's do some emails. Great. Uh, we've got, I've got five 
emails, really four, one, two of them are kind of the same thing that I've sort of earmarked, four or five, depends how you want to look at it. But the first one I'm going to talk about is from Graham Partridge David. Okay. He's been rereading his, uh, some Spider-Man comics because of our podcast. Thank you, Graham. He mentioned that he brought up this character that I'd never heard of, Will. This is from Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man Issue 62, which is sort of the second Spider-Man title, or third if you count Team Up. But it's sort of the second title, because Team Up barely counts. Right. And there's this character that shows up at some point called Goldbug, and I just sent you the image as well. Yes. And Goldbug is very clearly an analog to the Blue Beetle, another Ditko creation. A non-Marvel Ditko creation. Yeah. And just from what Graham wrote, as you will see in these attached images, he is pretty clearly created as a play on Steve Ditko's Blue Beetle. I included a few shots because it's obvious that artists Ed Hannigan and Jim Mooney are having a blast riffing on Ditko. The sparkles and the finger positions in the panel where he's firing his gold gun. Yeah, they're doing a super obvious Ditko homage. Yeah, they are drawing this character. They're not just designing a character that looks like Blue Beetle. They're drawing him the way Ditko would draw him. And I think that's really a fun character to bring into the Spider-Man comics of like another Ditko character and sort of just play into the Ditko-ish look of him. Uh, it's I never I have not read this issue and it looks great. It might just it's probably a, a medium story, but uh, well, it's fun. These images are fun. It, it was I, I've said to you before, it's sort of like if um, the Sopranos had done like a Scorsese tribute for some reason, yeah, like right. in a way that you didn't have to know that's what was going on. But they did like a long single take like in Goodfellas or something like that. Yeah. Uh, when comics do this sort of stuff, they don't come out and say it. So if you don't know who Blue Beetle is and you don't know if it's Steve Ditko and you don't know Spider-Man's history, it's just another character that sort of shows up. What are this? What's the Justice League analogs? The Squadron Su- Supreme? Squadron Supreme. Yeah. They're like, they're the Justice League. But if you don't know that, it's a good story anyway. But I mean, their powers are direct analogs. Of Justice right? League, There's, yeah. There's a Superman, and then there's a Batman, and, like, Nighthawk is, uh, I believe, the Batman character. Speaking of Watchmen, Watchmen are all direct analogs of Steve Ditko, Charlton character. The Question, Blue Beetle, Peacemaker, is he in there? Yeah, Peacemaker is the comedian. Uh, I forget who the Silk Spectre is, but she has a Ditko analog. Captain Adam becomes Dr. Dr. Manhattan. Manhattan, yeah. Question becomes Rorschach. Yeah, it's uh, it's you yeah. don't you don't need to know that at all to enjoy Watchmen, but it's kind of fun to know. Anyway, uh, Graham sent us that. He also sent us from a later issue of Peter Parker: The Spectacular Spider-Man, issue ninety-two, a character named the Answer. Mm-hmm. He's trying to figure out if maybe this was some sort of play off the question, though he doubts it. He says there's yeah. nothing to tie them together in their design or their personalities. He um, looks more like an Iron Fist looking at the answer's costume. He looks kind of like Iron Fist type of robes and hood, a Galactus tunic around his waist. <laughs> he's yeah, normal sized, but he looks like he's got some, looks like he and Galactus shop at the same store. Yeah, there's a, there's a 70s style to that guy, even though it sounds like he is from the early 80s. I mean, I've probably read that issue and I don't remember him at all. He is, the answer is forgettable. Sorry, but answer. But Graham uh, signs his email from your fellow Panty Waste, which I love. Yes. And I and I really love that he sent me these images and he has a website called OK We Run, where he creates comics for kids on the autism spectrum and they look great. That's extremely cool. Uh, he's uh, better. Art, his art is really great. Uh, moving on. Moving on. We got an email here from Jacob Foskel. So he was bringing up, we had mentioned at some point that we were uncomfortable with the idea, or at least I was uncomfortable, the idea that Ben and, that Ben sort of had a crush on Sue or was making a play for Sue. And he brings up the fact that in the recent Dan Slott issue, the FF wedding special, the wedding special for Ben's 
marriage to Alicia, who tied the knot. There is a flashback sequence entitled Change Partners that retcons the love angle between Ben and Sue as a ploy to get Reed jealous slash paying attention to Sue. The whole story is sweet and shows Sue looking out for Ben romantically and vice versa. Hmm. It's a nice look on the early days of their friendship, and he sent along an image that I've sent to Will. And I forgot this thing, and I think I like it. I think I like the retcon. I didn't like Ben being mad that Sue picked Reed over him. I didn't like them fighting over the same uh, woman. So this feels right to me. You know, Kurt Busiek would do this a lot, and I guess yeah. and Dan Slott does too, where they sort of like, they notice a no big deal inconsistency and figure out a way to explain it. They're doing like a, a no prize in continuity. Yeah, Kurt was huge on that sort of stuff. He would sort of like clean up things that bothered him, despite the fact that like you could just never mention it is the other way to handle it. Yeah, it's also like no one's worried about this. <laughs> they might read those old comics and go, oh, that's weird. I don't like that. But they're not reading current comics thinking about it. It's still nice to clean up if you, if you got the chance and you're telling a story that isn't all about that. I think it's really fun. And you're just a deft comic writer who can handle stuff. Oh, he asks a question too, Will. All right. If you could make Ben Grimm related to one of the characters, who would it be? And then who would be the outside of the family character instead of Ben? So you've created the FF. Yeah. But um, uh, Martin Goodman has stepped down and goes, no way. Ben's got to be in the family. One of the other people is out. Who do Man, you change? That's, a, that's really interesting. So Ben would be like Reed's brother or something or Sue's brother. Well, Reed and Sue are going to get married. So it's either Johnny or Ben has to be left out. So I'd leave Johnny out. Um, which then it's like, why in the world did they bring a teenager into space? <laughs> it's probably like a stowaway or something. Jack Kirby would definitely have a stowaway, a kid with such a sense of adventure. But I, I think I would like it better that he had access and his deal was he has to go or he won't let him in. So I'd make him like a computer hacker. Not that Reed couldn't hack into it, but just Johnny knows all the passwords. So Reed could save time by just bringing this kid along. Uh, here's my version. Okay. Make Ben and Johnny brothers. Mm-hmm. They're sort of like brothers anyway, but he's playing to that even more. Yeah. They love and hate each other. Make Reed the outsider. So he doesn't marry Sue? He marries Sue. He marries into the family. Now, is that a cheat? I guess so. Because he already is an outsider then, right? Yeah, I guess so. I'm cheating. In your version, he's no more the outsider. I guess because well, I'm guess i making Sue the outsider because if Ben and uh, Johnny are brothers... Is Sue then both of their sisters? Is it just like a family? I mean, if they're all siblings and Reed married into it, he is still an outsider. Yeah. Just by the virtue of like, oh, he's hanging out with three siblings. I like, um, let's do this. Ben and Johnny are brothers. Reed and Sue don't get married. She finds someone who treats her right. <laughs> okay, now, now we're talking. We fixed it. I say she marries the musician Elvis Costello. Okay, okay. I mean, he's a real person. Yeah, so it's well, tough... You know, someone else can work out the details. I'm the Stan Lee here. I'm just the broad strokes guy. Okay, sure, sure, sure. A Kirby will iron it out. Yeah. Benjamin Suarto sent us a couple of emails. This first one talks about the fact that he read the Black Panther issues that we just talked about a few episodes ago. And on one of the credits pages, after it credits Stan and Jack and Joe and Artie, it mentions the ballet Forbish Tersporkian Tersporki- Tersporki- Troop. I don't know this I can't either. say uh, it. Terpsichorean, but I, I've never heard of that word. Well, so he Googled it, which is why he emailed us. And the name Ters- Ter- Terpsichorean yeah. means a group of dancers uh, and derives the word from Terpsichore, the Greek goddess of dance and music. Um, so what do you think about this? Was Stan just showing off with some cultural flourishes? Yes. Is Kerbit in the habit of crediting outside influences? Do you think they sense portraying traditional 
dances was a racially <laughs> sensitive issue and actually turned to a real dance group in search of some authentic authenticity. <laughs> I love that idea. And I think the answer is Stan is showing off. I think Stan read a lot. Stan read a lot and he just liked to throw stuff in that he was interested in. I love that aspect of Stan Lee. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it added a huge amount of quality to Marvel Comics that he was kind of a show off with his vocabulary and that he was just had an intellectual curiosity about things and it would sort of ham-fistedly shove him into stories. I think that's rad. I mean, I think that's yeah. what makes Marvel special. And uh, obviously the word Forbush is from Forbush uh, man or Irving Forbush. Was yes. that his full name? Irving Forbush, Which yeah. was a comical character from some of the humor books that Stan did. It was sort did. of the Alfred E. Newman of Marvel Comics, kind of. Yeah, that Stan was sort of trying to force down people's throats. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if he was ever popular. Nobody ever liked Irving Forbush, but I do begrudgingly have an affection for people trying to make me like Irving Forbush. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I'm a, Fr- I'm a Fred Hembeck man myself. I'm a, in terms of Marvel <laughs> humor. Yes, if I want a uh, Marvel humorist, Fred's my guy. His Peter Parker, long before he was Spider-Man strips, are delightful. Yeah. Uh, he also sent us, Benjamin Suarto sent us, um, he saw this, he thought it was through Twitter, so I sent you the tweet. Okay. Uh, there's a blog out there, or a Tumblr, where someone takes out the dialogue from the Fantastic Four comics just so you can look at Jack's art um, to see if you can get a better sense of Jack's intentions. And somebody pointed out that sometimes it makes Sue a lot stronger is not a huge surprise if you click that link, Will. Oh, that's really interesting. You see this image of Sue sort of standing, hands on her hips, sort of looking down at the lazy FF kind of laying about. But then the dialogue is Sue going, I'll have to clean this place or something like that, right? Yeah, that's so interesting. I think I'd better do a little house cleaning is what she says. I don't think Jack is completely without blame for the use of Sue. Of course not. But I certainly think Stan exasperated it. Yeah, and it's probably more that's such an interesting uh, experiment uh, because, you know, Jack Kirby could not help but draw people in heroic poses. And so there's an opportunity there for somebody who's interested in making Sue more than just a housewife to have her be doing more interesting things. Yeah, that's real. Oh, I love that. That's really fun. Yeah. If you look through this Tumblr, there's lots of uh, fun stuff in there. It's not that's not a Tumblr just to make Sue to show what Sue was really doing. It's more just to try to figure out. The, the true intention of that storyline. Stan sometimes gets that stuff wrong, but I do think sometimes the dialogue makes her weaker. Sometimes there's images of her crying and running away. And, well, there's no doubt. Or trying on wigs. <laughs> yeah, there's no, blame there's no doubt Stan in the on intention that. there. Yeah. But thank you for showing sharing that with us, Benjamin. Yeah, that's great. Uh, one last one. This is from Sam Russell. It's a casting email. I, I'm never good at casting emails. Yeah. Uh, but Sam was nice enough to send his picks. He he wants to know who should play Galactus, uh, which is a fun question. And his picks are Tom Hanks. Okay, that's an insanely, funnily bad choice. <laughs> I think that's terrible. Nicolas Cage. I mean, it's probably bad, but it is interesting and who knows, possible. Yeah. The next three, I think, are decent choices. Edward James Olmos. Oh, yeah, that's fun. I think that's a pretty good choice. Uh, Keanu Reeves. I mean, that's hilarious. But I sort of think Keanu could do it. I mean, Keanu's great, like, but it would it, it would surprise me. I like, can we go back to Olmos? Olmos has a sadness about him where yeah. Galactus would be sort of like almost tragically doomed to this life of eating planets that he hates that I, I kind of love that take. Edward James Olmos is a great pick. Keanu Reeves, I think, is sort of a stealthily decent pick. Yeah. Uh, sort of his sort of like emotionless face could really work for it. I mean, I would just uh, end up sympathizing with Galactus. I'd be like on his side. I'd be like, well, that dude's awesome. 
If you were thinking that with Keanu, what about Ethan Hawke? That was his last pick. Oh, I, now this I, I love Ethan Hawke as an actor. I don't know, but he could be pretty good. I, I, he's maybe too. I, I would. I was. I was thinking we'd have somebody with a little bit more default personality, and Ethan I think is a little bit more of a chameleon. Um, but he could certainly do it. I was thinking uh, Michael Shannon would be sort of fun. Yeah, I can see that. The bad guy from uh, Shape of Water, and he's got kind of an intensity to him where I, I could see him sort of doing it. Who worry, it's almost a waste to put Michael Shannon in that role. I guess you could say that for anybody. I can sort of see almost sort of uh, phoning it in and still getting a good portrayal out of it, though. Here's a bad pick would be Vin Diesel. You cast him because of his work in The Iron Giant of just being big, huge, giant things. Well, I know Vin Diesel is a tough person to get to be in your movies, <laughs> but I'll see what we can do. <laughs> uh, Sam also compliments your your cameo in the, the Between Two Ferns movie, Will. Oh, thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be in it. He's like, Will Hines was my number one favorite celebrity cameo in the Between <laughs> Two Ferns movie. Woohoo! Watch that movie if you haven't seen it, guys, to see Will Hines for a scene. Yeah, I have two lines. I'm at about ten minutes from the end, so keep your eyes peeled. Yeah. Although if you're watching the movie, you can't miss me, but I, I'm I'm just in there for two lines. But thank you, Sam. Thanks for those emails. Thanks, everyone, for those emails. Again, if you want to email us, it's uh, screwitspidey at gmail.com. Yeah. Not screwitcomics, screwitspidey. Uh, we use our old email address from the previous seasons. Our social media is all screwitcomics at Twitter and Instagram. Um, let's do a fantastic chat where we give Great. each other little discussion topics. Great. You want to go first? Yeah. How would you, I mean, we've probably answered this, but I don't know what your answer would be. So I'm asking you again. And if you've said it before, I just want you to tell me again. If you were going to, you could change dialogue only for Sue. What do you do to improve her personality? You, you can't change the art. The hair stuff and the, and the bedridden aspect of her is tough to fix. But maybe I uh, make her more bedridden because of an injury somehow uh, that she, or that her powers are backfiring on her somehow. So that it's not just like she's being put in bed because she can't handle it, but it's like something has gone wrong almost. And it's, you know, not not only is she pregnant, but like she's sick. Yeah. Um, I think that you could probably pull something off like that. Yeah. The other thing is like just any time there's any thought balloon about her thinking someone's attractive, that's gone. That's, that's gone, easy. Yeah. That's, you can remove that. No one would even know. And I would probably have, uh, uh, you definitely would have to take away any time Reed is mean to her. The absence, you know, instead we can. There's different ways to show that Reed is the leader besides just bossing everybody around. Yeah, I would never have him yell at Sue. Not ever. Not even in his most stressed. To Sue, he is a good guy. I like that. Uh, what would you do, Will? So I just thought about it while you were answering. I didn't prepare any answers for this, but uh, since the art has her just like left out of the action so much. I would try to make that a deliberate choice on her part. I would make her sort of a pacifist philosopher type who, like, is uncomfortable with the idea of using force and kind of only gets involved when it's absolutely necessary. Her thought balloons would be sort of doubting whether they're doing the right thing. And whatever moments that she and Reed are actually talking at a crucial moment, I would have her, like, influence what he does somehow. I'd have to do this in a case-by-case basis, but it would be like Reed is a bit too aggressive and violent, and Sue, through her pacifist philosophy, softens him. That I would that would that would be the direction I want to push her as much as I could. I actually don't mind wig and dresses stuff uh, as long as it's from a. Per- I mean, I'm somebody interested in fashion and 
their look. I think that's kind of rad. And I think Kirby was nice and experimental about changing all of their fashions and looks. So I, I, I could keep that, but I totally agree that there'd be, there'd be no more of her talking about the attractiveness of any of the other characters. Yeah, I, I, the risk, I think, of making her a pacifist is making her, if you get into her lecturing the other characters on not being pacifists, um, characters that tell the other characters not to do the things they're good at turn off audiences a lot of times. Well, maybe it would just be like a hesitancy or something, just like yeah. just like trying to find a different way to do stuff that, that they are sympathetic to. Like, you know, aren't we the good guys? Shouldn't we be finding a different way to do this? I mean, you could almost take her in the, uh, this will be a deep cut for people, the Katie Power away, Katie Power being the youngest member of Power Pack, where she's scared at how powerful she is. Ugh. So she's like, oh, I could kill somebody. I don't want to do that. I love, so there, you, I love you that You can have aspect an aspect of that, of that too, right? She could kill somebody easily. Well, we should do a couple Power Pack issues, man. That's, a, that's an underrated we, book. I mean, covering like the first, uh, the origin story of that would be fun. Okay, so that's mine for you. So, yeah, I didn't come prepared for with one either, so this is sort of off the cuff as well. If only we had years of experience as improvisers that require us to come up with ideas on the fly. But, you know, we don't. That's we don't. not a thing we have. We don't. We don't have um, that. This is the first time we've ever spoken to each other yeah. without a script. That's right. But, yeah, I, I guess my question is um, if – I guess if – if the Inhumans stayed in this comic forever, which is a thing I keep thinking about, if Dragon Man stayed in this comic, if the Inhumans stayed in this comic, what's next? Where do you take the FF next? Oh, man. Like, what's the next thing they explore? Because I think that's tough to find that next place to tap into a new race. They found Atlantis. Yeah. They found this secret race okay. on Earth. They've gone to an the answer. negative zone. They've gone to the microverse. Where do they go next? It's a tough question because it's already so big and unwieldy, but I would basically, I'm inspired by the comic book Lucifer, which you recommended to me, where there is a character who is a daughter of the angel Michael and therefore has like superpowers kind of, Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, angel like, like a godlike ability sort of. Yes. And uh, she creates a world and watches it grow and she is the god of that world. It's almost like an experiment for her. Uh, I was always very intrigued by that storyline. Yeah, that's really Lucifer does a lot of fun stuff with uh, creation myth. I would basically have Reed discover a civilization in a very primitive form, and he tries to. He doesn't like how the Watcher never interferes. So he tries to interfere in a benevolent way, and he basically like puts the Inhumans in charge of a civilization to see if it can help. Maybe they can do better than the human race has done if somebody's guiding them. And it's sort of a subplot where you check in on how is this planet of, and it's it's not working, you know, like yeah. warlike instincts take over. Thing, the Inhumans are corrupt sometimes, and they overly interfere, and that's how I would do it. Yeah, I think the risk is I wouldn't want to do a thing like the Captain Britain. I wouldn't want to do multiple FFs, multiple dimensions. Uh, I mean, they've done some of that stuff in the past. I wouldn't want to get too deep in that. Uh, they've done time travel. They've just hit so many of the limits around them. Uh, it's it's very tricky. I mean, you can always find a new dimension for them to travel into, but it almost feels lazy. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, you, you could do a thing with them going into afterlife-type worlds, going into, like, hell or, Ooh. 
yeah, the Norse hell even, which obviously Thor goes to, but kind of dealing with those sorts of things, that'd be a little outside their element maybe and could be really fun. All right. I like it. Um, well, uh, Kevin, have we reached the end of an episode? I think we have. It's a quick one. For us, yeah. Leave 30 minutes of silence at the end of this just so it feels long. Okay, I'll do it. Yeah, so next episode we're either going to get back into the issues or we might have an interview. I feel like it's going to be issues. Uh, and we'll just do, we don't know how many, but... Um, yeah, we'll probably try to record it and we'll just sort of see the pace see that we're on we get. and kind of call it out. And then uh, I'll plug earlier so you know how many issues we're covering. We're going to try to get through the rest of them faster. Yeah. But we're not going to cover 15 to 20 at a time. Yeah. Maybe it'll be more like around 10. Kevin, uh, great job. Uh, great job uh, podcast. Yeah, and you too, Will. I'm glad we caught up. Uh, all right. See you all next episode. Goodbye. Bye, Irving Furbush. Furbusher. Screw it. Screw it. We're just Comics. Hey guys, I'm Stevie Nelson. And I'm Dave Horowitz. And we're the hosts of I Burn Everything. It's a podcast about food and relationships, which, you know, if we're being honest, are two out of the three things people want to talk about anyway. What's the third thing? Netflix. Okay. We'd like you to rate, review, and subscribe if you like it. Anywhere you listen to your podcast, Apple, iPod. Stitcher. Do you still have iPods? (laughs) (laughs) If you have an iPod, do it on an iPod. I don't know. If you have a Zune, do it on your it's Zune. It's probably hard to even charge them now. Yeah, good luck. And if you have a Tamagotchi, you can't do any of this. Yeah, you can't stream audio on a Tamagotchi, but you you can feed them. Yeah, you still so keep feed feeding those it. little buggers. They're hungry. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Campfire. <laughs>